Hello and welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles and today the Poison Pen is delighted to have back with us virtually one of our favorite authors, Emily Huber, whose new book, Sisters of Fortune, will soon be on bookstore shelves and library shelves near you. Before we begin today, I'd like to let those tuning in know the Poison Pen does have copies of all of Emma's books. And if you'd like us to hold one for you or put one in the mail, just give us a call or go online to the Poison Pen Bookstore. Now I'd like to welcome Anna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming back again. Um, while I may know your backstory, we'll pretend that there are a few people tuning in that don't. Um, you've always kind of flirted with writing, even at a young age, but you initially wanted to pursue a different artistic career. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. My other great love, other than writing, is music. Um, and so I actually went to college for music. I wanted to be like a pop singer. <laughs> um, and so I went for vocal performance, which in college is usually more classical. So I'm more trained to be an opera singer, <laughs> you would say. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And I, I was in uh, Nashville and I pursued that for a while, backup singing and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I had always loved writing at a young age, but it kind of fell, fall into the wayside. And then I kind of picked it up again. And I, you know, just to give it a try and the bug caught me and I just kept at it. And I decided, you know, this is what I wanted to do. Um, so I didn't have to travel and be on the road all the time and, and all those kind of things. So now I just do music kind of on the side, um, like our, I'm on the worship team at our church and that kind of stuff, but writing is, is what I pursue. So <laughs> what was your initial path to publication? Like, when did you decide I want to write a book and how did that go? So, yeah, it was about a year after college, um, like I said, I just kind of got back into reading the stuff I liked because in college and in high school, it's like you get assigned all these books and you don't really have a lot of time to read for pleasure, I guess I would say. Um, and I got back into mysteries and historicals and romance and all these things. And I was like, you know, I'm going to give this a try. And so uh, the first book I wrote took me, I think, three years and it will never see the light of day. It was a learning experience for sure. Um, and then I had a few other ones that I wrote. I just kept at it and I kept submitting. I joined some uh, writers organizations to get feedback and I uh, applied to contests and all these things um, and sent to literary agents, just getting feedback, just learning, building my craft. And then it took me about seven years before my first book, which was The Anatomist's Wife, Lady Darby Book One, was published. So I guess that's kind of a lesson for aspiring writers out there who think that it's an overnight kind of path to publication. It can take a long time. It can. And, you know, if my first book had been published, it it would not have gone well. Like I can see now, I really needed that time to learn. And I was always a good writer, but there's a difference. There's, there's a lot of skills that you have to learn just from doing it. Um, and that's what I always tell aspiring writers, just write. You will learn more from writing, just the act of doing it and creating the story and learning where all the hits come and all that. Um, than anything else. So. Well, that's valuable advice because I think you're right. It's like any art form, whether it's music or painting, or you practice is the key to becoming proficient. In that Absolutely. Way. Let's talk about your new book, Sisters of Fortune. What can you tell those tuning in about this? Yes. So it is a novel of the Titanic. Um, I was actually approached to write a book about the Titanic. That's wow. what they wanted it to feature. Uh, and 
to mainly be set on and tell that story, but from a different angle. Mm -hmm. And so when I started looking into the passengers and all that kind of stuff, you know, how do I want to approach this? How do I want to make this unique? I stumbled across this family from Winnipeg, Canada. Um, and I had never heard of them before. And I thought, how on earth have I not heard of them? Uh, the Fortune family, there were six of them that, that were on the Titanic. They had been in Europe for the grand tour. The father had taken them. Um, he was a millionaire from Winnipeg. And they were coming back. Their last treat was to ride on the Titanic home. And three of the children were 20-year-old in their 20s. And they were sisters. And they all had kind of different stories of why they were in Europe and why they were, what they were wanting to do with their life. And I thought, how interesting. And so I dived in to learn about this family. And some of the things I learned about them were just stranger than fiction. I mean, um, and a lot of a lot of their the information about them comes from secondhand sources. Um, a lot of the information about their voyage, because they were notoriously quiet about it when they got back. They didn't talk about it with family. They didn't share and they were on, they, they actually sailed over to Europe with this man named William Sloper from Connecticut. They just happened to meet him on the ship. And he spent part of the time while they were on their grand tour, he was on, on a, a parallel tour. Um, and then when they came home, he happened to be on the Titanic coming home. And so a lot of the information about them comes from him. And he talks about how uh, when they were in Cairo, that one of the daughters actually received a fortune from a soothsayer and said, you know, it was really eerie. It was about, you know, I see you in a boat alone on the sea and you're going to lose everything but your life. And I mean, it was just like, yeah. I thought, wait, this can't be real. And it was real. It was really happened. And it was not even told by the sister. It was told by this other man that happened to be with her. And so I thought this has to, this has to be included. And I have to talk about this family and, and all of their fascinating experience. So it's when you're choosing the topic for a book, whether it's fiction, historical fiction, whatever, especially in the case of historical fiction, you have to find, I guess it's a challenge for you as a writer, because you have to find someone that's accessible to readers, but someone that they don't already know everything about, because then if you change things, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> that's right. And I do end up changing one of the sisters' stories. And I, I that's why the book is inspired by them, because I couldn't find a whole lot of minute detail about what they did on the ship. It was a lot of broad strokes. And one of the sisters, their story was so similar to the other that I, I had to change hers a little bit just to, because it's fiction, it's fiction. So I can kind of imagine whatever I'd like to happen. And I do uh, make sure I'm clear about that in the author notes, author, so readers can know what really happened to that sister. So yeah. Tell us about a little bit about each of the sisters. So Flora is the oldest sister. Um, she's based on, uh, uh, I've changed her name slightly. It's her middle name um, because she's the one I changed her story the most. And she's, you know, she uh, was engaged to be married and she's kind of the dutiful daughter and she wants to please her family. And when they sail, she's kind of postponed her wedding so that, that she can go on this trip and she can act as the chaperone for her younger siblings. And so as they're coming home, she's she's kind of uncertain. She's not as excited to return as she thought she would be. She's not sure that this is the life she really wants, but she also doesn't want to upset her family. She knows what's expected of her. And so she's kind of trepidatious returning and, and a little uncertain of herself. And then she kind of meets someone that upsets the boat <laughs> for her. Um, and then Alice is the daughter who 
who had the the um, fortune told to her in Cairo, Egypt, and she is kind of the middle child. She's a little, you know, a little cosseted. She's, you know, she has them. She also has a fiance who she adores. Um, but this is her first chance to really go on adventure and, and to travel far from home. And she just revels in it. She loves all the places they go and seeing all these, um, you know, ancient monuments and and all these things in Paris and all these exciting locations. And so returning home, she's a little, um, she's also a little trepidatious because she's decided, you know, she really wants to travel. She wants to have adventures. She doesn't want this life that's planned for her where she doesn't, you know, move further than, you know, a few, block, few blocks from her home. So uh, she's also a little uncertain. And then we have the daughter, uh, the youngest daughter, Mabel, who is, you know, she's kind of mixed up with a jazz singer from Minnesota that her parents don't approve of and they want to separate them. Um, and she's a little bit of the troublemaker. She's she's one of the youngest and uh, she doesn't want to be married. She doesn't want to have the traditional life. She wants, she's interested in suffrage. She's interested in going to university. Women have just started doing that and there's a lot of pushback on it. And so she's trying to convince her father to let her do something different with her life. Why do you think people are so fascinated by the Titanic? Why did they want you to write about this subject? Is it just that darn movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> Something. I'm sure that doesn't hurt, but <laughs> um, I think it's it's just a comp, such a compact tragedy. I mean, it's like it's one of those things you can't turn away from, but it's also you feel for these people that went through it. I mean. It was supposed to be this epitome of achievement mm -hmm. and it was a maiden voyage and it was so hyped up. And then th that this happened and just the, the human sorrow of it, you know, and I mean, it was fast and people were fascinated from the, the time it happened. I mean, there was news articles like crazy. There was speculation because they couldn't get confirmation. Did the ship sink? Did it not sink? And, you know, when people came, when they arrived in New York, I mean, th there was thousands and tens of thousands of people on the piers waiting for them. And they were all wanting to be interviewed. And it was just, they were hounded by the journalists. And if they didn't get a story from you, they would make something up. And it was just from the very beginning, it was very, it captured everyone's interest and it captured everybody's hearts because there was all these stories of heroism and just horrible tragedy of things that happened and like strange things, you know, that, you know, stranger than fiction that you were like, how in the world? So um, yeah, I think it's just kind of, it's such, it's just such a good story. I mean, and it, and it tugs at your heartstrings. So I think it's hard to hard to beat that, honestly. <laughs> I think you're right. In many ways it does. There's all those personal cameos. I could be incorrect. I think this is one of the passengers was well, not passengers, but crew members was accused of trying to get in the lifeboats. Um, there was all kind. There was accusations of them shooting passengers, and there was there was all kinds of things. And it, and it's and we're still trying to untangle the truth. I mean, going through the witness statements, going through what they've been able to since they found the Titanic, what they've been able to learn and. You know, there even even the fact that it's split in half. I mean, there was all of these witness statements, and they had hundreds of them, and most of them said that it split in half. Well, the official statement they went with the few crew members. There was like twelve people, I think, and they were like either up very uh, highly respected or crew members. They said no, it didn't split in half, and so that became the official story because they believed them and not all these other people that said no, it split in half. So. 
Um, and then we've learned, yes, it did split in half, you know, since we found the ship. So yeah, it's just lots of, lots of crazy untangling all the webs. And for a writer, and I guess for readers too, it's especially fascinating because the Titanic is also a microcosm of society. You think yes. it's with all these wealthy Astors, Vanderbilts, and people, but now it's the second class passengers and the people down in steerage and the cruisers. Yes. yes, absolutely. I mean, and when you're studying it and learning about them, you know, it, you, I think when I was researching, one of the things I was struck by was that these people in third class, you know, the Titanic was still the most luxurious ship, even for them, oh. as all the other ships. And and it was the first time in their lives and perhaps ever in their life that they had a whole week that they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to cook their meal. They didn't have to get their firewood. I mean, whatever it was. I mean, like these people, they worked every day of their lives from sunup to sundown. And they didn't have to do anything. The meals were made for them. And, and so I just thought the, the children, they talk about the children playing on the, the well deck and swinging on the cranes and like trying to entertain themselves because they've never had a whole week where they didn't have to do anything. So I just like to think about that. You know what I mean? I was like, and then you had the wealthy who never did anything. Some of them never did anything. So. <laughs> and yet surprisingly, um, again, I, I'm kind of pulling from my memory, but um, some of the wealthy people proved to be really honorable. I'm thinking of the husband yes. and the wife who, like the wife would not leave her husband. She was- Yes, was yes, that? Ida Strauss, yes. yes I mean, mm -hmm. and there were so many fascinating people. When I got to write this book, I really wanted to feature some of the people that we don't hear a lot about. I mean, I didn't realize there was a there was a female doctor. There was a female lawyer. There was a woman who was an interior decorator and a suffragist, and she did all these wonderful things. I mean, um, there was a mystery writer. I mean, like we hardly ever hear about these people. And I thought, I, I want to feature these people so that we know about them and their achievements. And also it played into, you know, Mabel. She's wanting to do other things. And so she meets these ladies and sees, oh, yes, it is possible. It was a time of change. Um, as much as we think we know about the Titanic, there's still a lot of mysteries about it. And I was reading something you'd written, like I, I had always assumed that, I mean, we have this idea in this case that the band was playing near my God to thee, but we really don't know that, do we? Right. There's all these, there's different reports about what they were playing and there's discrepancy over the tune that we know as Americans was not the tune that the English used for that hymn and they called it a different tune. I mean, like, cause sometimes the same tune is used with different words and it's like, so there's a lot of kind of confusion about what really was played, but then also, you know, the band master talked about, you know, well, if he actually told someone not several months before the Titanic sailed that if he had a last song to choose that you could hardly do better than that hymn. So it's kind of like, did they play it or did they not play it? I mean, so it's hard when you're writing those kind of things, it's like you have to kind of, I don't know, try to find the line. You know what I mean? So like, I didn't say what it was. I just said it was a hymn because I don't know. I, I don't know what the right answer is. So. It's interesting that you mentioned finding the line because I want to broaden the scope a bit and talk about your writing. When you're writing historical fiction as a writer, I'm guessing that there is a line to walk. How much fact do you include? How much fiction can you bring in? For you, where does that line, where do you see that line? Oh, goodness. So I try to be as factual as I can, um, but then I'm also, it is fiction. I am writing a story. So 
you know, I try not to fudge facts, but mm -hmm. if I need to include something to enhance the story, I do, if that makes sense. Um, so it's not like I change the facts or if I do, I shift them slightly and I try to note that, but like, then I try to like fill in the blanks between, you know, like, well, this could have happened, you know, somebody could have done this. Somebody could have said this or heard this or, you know, um, and I think that's, that's what's fun about it, you know, filling in all those blank spaces that we don't have for history. And so I feel like that's kind of the way I approach it. Um, like I said, in this book, I did change one of the sister stories lately, and I did that on purpose. And that's why I always emphasize it's inspired by them. This isn't their story verbatim. So, um, but I, 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 you know, and, and even my one fictional character, my one character that's completely fictional is based on real people that I just couldn't weave in how I would want. And so I kind of took pieces from their story that I thought were really interesting and then made sure to note that in that author's note so people could credit to the right person. I think that's a, an excellent way to approach it because you have to look at this book as a novel, as fiction. And if you, but if you change things and if read, there are those fussy readers that, you know, really want everything correct. If you note in the back and the appendix and the notes, whatever you want to call it, on your website and say, this is what I did as a writer to make the story work. I think that's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I knew going into this, there's, there are people who know the Titanic. They know it frontwards and backwards. And there's a lot of things that we don't have the answers to, but there are some people that feel certain they know. And there's just no way I can please everybody. There just isn't. I mean, what I decided was probably the best guess of what happened may not be what somebody else decided. And, you know, that's just how it rolls. I mean, so, um, you know, I, I did my best. That's all I can do. And, and so, and make those notes in the back. So. Well, you did an excellent job. Well, thank uh, you. <laughs> you had obviously had to do a lot of research for the book. What kinds of sources proved to be the most valuable to you as an author in writing it? What did you discover when you were researching the book that surprised you the most about the Titanic? So um, a lot of the firsthand sources, those, you know, the testimonies that were given to the American Commission and the British, um, those absolutely, which a lot of the research texts, you know, that's what they pull from because that's what the people said happened that were on the ship. There were firsthand accounts. Um, those definitely. And then there's a book called um, On a Sea of Glass. Um, it's by a, a several authors. It, their, their research, that's what they do. They research these things intensely. And it's it. if anybody is interested in Titanic, I highly recommend this book because it really gets deep into stuff. And it gets has a section where it goes into each of the unanswered questions and what's the best probably, you know, reasoning for what happened. And um, I highly recommend it. You A lot of times when there was a uncertainty, I fell with what they feel like is the best guess of what happened. So um, that book is an excellent one. Um, I think one of the things that I was really surprised about was, um, and I had to use it, was I did not realize there was a cat on the Titanic. I didn't and of course, to me, it made sense because, okay, a mouser, obviously they would need a mouser, but I just didn't think about that. And I thought I have to use this cat, especially when I read uh, one of the stewardesses talks about how um, this cat loved one of the, the um, one of the people that worked in the kitchen and he took care of her and um and her kittens because she had kittens right before they sailed and i just thought i've got to include that cat because <laughs> i love cats so 
Um, and of, of course, learning about the third, you know, the third class, the, the fact that they didn't have to work for that whole week, you know, and just thinking of it in those terms. Um, oh, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Thomas Cardiza, who is the son of Charlotte Cardiza, the dragon, you know, the the uh, socialite that kind of was scary to people because she was very brusque. Um, they stayed in one of the um, parlor suites, the massive ones, the one that gets featured in the movie Titanic. It's where um, Rose stays, okay? And they stay in one of those parlor suites and um, Thomas used the um, the veranda, the private veranda for poker games, private poker games. And I thought that was really interesting and I've got to use this because you know, you know that, you know, Aster went there, you know, that all these big people went there. And so, you know, what a great place to to watch them. <laughs> Your um, book is just, it's rich with all these wonderful facts. The things that I didn't really realize or know or forgotten was that the Titanic had a sister ship. Um, and that there yes. was, there was, uh, there were two orphans of the Titanic. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. The two orphans. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I know. And the fact that whole news story caught everybody because they didn't know their names because they were they had gone. They had sailed under assumed names because their father was trying to hide who they were. And, and it was just a whole interesting story. Yes, absolutely. Now, is uh, Sisters of Fortune is your first true historical fiction novel? Is that correct? It is. All the other ones before are mysteries. So okay. what I thought. Was it different in a way without having a dead body to deal with? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It was definitely different plotting. And especially for this book, because it was a lot of what is the story of Titanic, you know, and and mapping all of that out and all the little um, moments that were real factual things that happened. How can I include them? How can I have my characters witness them? And so I almost had to lay out a grid of the story of the Titanic and all the different events, and then try to interlay and in my characters into that somehow. It was it was extremely mind-boggling to begin with to plot out in intense. Um, and so I feel like that that's even different than regular historical fiction. I mean, I feel like you do do that to a certain extent, but this was very minute. I mean, I just, anyway, so that was probably the trickiest thing for me, trying to find a way to make that work. Um, and so it's definitely different than a mystery because I plot my mysteries very differently. So, <laughs> and there wasn't the just, you know, the flow of, okay, well, we had a dead body and now we've, now we have this clue and now, oh, there's this suspect. And so I feel like I know that rhythm and this rhythm was very different. So it was definitely a challenge and, a, and definitely a, a ex different experience writing it. Hmm. And you were um, approached to write this book. This was not something that you decided to have inside it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I and and when I was first approached, I was very hesitant because I thought, oh boy, Titanic. You know, this is a huge undertaking, not only in research but just because I knew I had to get it right. You can't just fudge it. And so um, I wasn't sure. And then I and then when I found that Fortune family, the Fortune family and the Fortune sisters, I was like, oh, I really want to write about them because nobody knows about them and people should. So. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, you do have past experience because your historical mysteries are very accurate and very true to the time period as much as you can make them. Um, 
how did that, how did writing this, did this writing this book impact your mystery writing? Did you have to shuffle things around? Oh, yes, I did. Um, so my Verity series, actually the books, I had to basically take a year off from Verity to finish this because this was so intense. It took so long to do the research and all that. And interestingly enough, the next Verity is is very research intense. So I, I the last year has been a lot of research. <laughs> um just, you know, learning different things. So, but I mean, yes, I did have that background from my mysteries because I do do a lot of research. And so it, that part wasn't different to me, you know, um, but yeah, the the plotting and all that was. So. Now that you've um, got your first historical novel under your belt, so to speak, have you developed a taste for it? Is this something you want to pursue? I would like to write some more historical fiction novels. Um, I need to find the right story. So I've got my historical mysteries under contract. So I've been trying to to write those and catch up with those. Um, but yes, I would. I would really like to to try my hand at some more straight, more straight historical fiction like this. So um, let's talk a little bit about for every book, it's important, the cover and the title. But in the case, Sisters of Fortune, was that your idea for the title? Was it a joint effort? It was. I just thought, I mean, you can't come with come up with anything more perfect than that. And their last name, I mean, it was just, it's just idyllic, you know, yeah. fortune, you know, all the different, you know, ways to think about it. So um, the different definitions and yeah, I just, yeah, that was my idea. So <laughs> it works. Um, you've mentioned your two historical mystery series. For those that might not be aware of them, can you tell us a little bit about each one? Yes. So the Lady Darby mysteries um, are set in 1830s Scotland, England, um, and a feature a, she's a portrait artist with a macabre past, and her husband and her staff, she just kind of has a team now and family that help her out, um, you know, solving mysteries and things, and um she has this knowledge of anatomy. So that features in a lot of my books. Um, art features a lot because she's a portrait artist. Um, and just that time period is so fascinating because it's such a period of change. There's a lot of, you know, it doesn't get featured a lot. It falls between the Regency and Victoria. It's the reign of William IV. And it's just this little pocket of time that doesn't get featured a lot, but there's so much interesting things going on and so many laws that change and um, reforms that happen. And so I love getting to feature those in different ways. And then, um, and I, I should say the next book in that series, uh, A Deceptive Composition, which is book 12, that comes out on June 18th. Wow. So it's coming up. Um, and then Verity Kent, um, my Verity Kent series is set in post-World War I um, England and Europe and that. Um, she was a spy for British intelligence during the war. And so a lot of the mysteries that happen, you know, they relate to things that happened in the war. She has a bit of an arch nemesis, kind of like a Moriarty figure that they are now trying to beat. Mm -hmm. um, and she has a little bit of a team also that works with her. She's kind of gathered around her, her friends and that. And this next uh, book in the series that I just finished writing, book seven, which comes out later this year in late September, um, it's called The Cold Light of Day. Um, she's going to Ireland. So they're stepping into the Irish Revolution, which was a massive challenge to research and try to get right. Um, and it's going to kind of be a trilogy that's set in Ireland um, around this issue. And one of her former fellow spies was sent ahead of her and has now disappeared. And so she's got to find out what happened to him. 
Oh. Wow, so it's like almost like a mini series within a series or something. Yes. So it's just I've I've wanted to delve into the Irish Revolution for a long time. It's just the perfect timing and the fact that she's a British agent, but with her background, she's kind of uncertain that they're handling things well. And so it allows me to kind of have this middle ground to to examine it all. And um, there's just so many fascinating things that happen then. And it's something that people have kind of shied away from because it's so controversial, but it's been over a hundred years now. And so I feel like, you know, now's the time. So it's exciting. Wow. That does sound great. Um, writing series. And I know this as a reader and working with readers, people tend to shy away from long running, long established series because they figure, if it's book 10, I can't go back and read the first nine books. You know, I've got too much to do. How as an author do you make sure that your series stay connected, but yet each one is accessible as an individual book? Yeah, that's definitely tricky. Um, and I do. I always try to make sure my books are, you can leap in at any point and you will not be lost. Um, to me, it comes down to each book. Basically, the mystery within the book has to be self-contained. So everything else can be overarching. So for example, the character's development or the romance's development, you can kind of do it in stages. And so it's kind of an overarc for the series, but for each book, it's a little leap. So um, that's basically how I think about it when I'm plotting. And even like, if you have a bigger mystery, you know, maybe they learn a chunk of it here, but you can carry it over and summarize, and then they learn a chunk of it here. So that Readers can jump in and still know what's going on and feel comfortable with it. But also it's that balance of not info dumping for the people who have kept up with this series because they don't want to read a 10 pages of here's what happened in the last 10 books, you know, so <laughs> finding ways to feed that information in in a natural way that's just kind of, hey, I'm going to remind you of what happened. So. That's great. Um, how, as a writer, have you watched what's you've been writing for a number of years, watched what's going on in publishing and either been surprised or not surprised by the changes? What about publishing do you wish someone had told you you need to know this before you start writing? I think one thing I will say is it's a long game. Mm -hmm. I think most authors do not have one gung-ho bang out success and then everything else flows. Mm -hmm. Um I think most authors you build a career and i think that's what what i wish i'd realized more from the beginning i guess um you know like i write series and so they build on each other and so my income builds on it and so the more books you have out the more potential you have and the more people can glom your backlist and all those kind of things and so you know um i think it's a long game for most authors so if you want to be an author it's a job and you just do it like any other job and you know and think of it in those terms as that long game and and also try to pivot when you need to when things change um you know i was surprised recently to learn that backlist is selling as much as frontlist now so um if not more in some cases and so um that didn't used to be the case and so that helps you now if you have 20 books under your belt because they can discover your first book as easily as your latest book. So, um, so, so that long game analogy helps in that terms too. So, um, and even, you know, if you do have that bang out success, it doesn't mean you can rest on your laurels. You still have to just keep going, keep finding that, that story that intrigues you and just keep writing, keep at it. 
That's interesting. I didn't know that backlist was a thing now. Um, I'm wondering also if you're in a way kind of buoyed by the idea that trade paperback is becoming more and more prevalent. It's mass market used to rule when it came to paperback, but I'm seeing less of that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I like being in trade, so I think it's a good place to be. Now, if I'm correct, you actually also dabbled a little bit in indie publishing. You have a one book. I did. I do have one book that's indie published, um, which, you know, bookstores can get it. So you could order it through the poison pen. Um, um, and it's a, I, I love gothics. I just adore them. Mary Stewart and Victoria Holt. Those kind of authors are my favorites. Um, and so it's kind of a love letter to something I just really like. Um, I actually tried to traditionally published and they just didn't think it was viable market in the market. So I was like, well, I've written this book and I love it. I'm just going to publish it and see, you know, and it sold, it sold well. I mean, so well enough that I've been trying to do a second book in the series and I just, I keep getting contracts. So I've been very blessed that I have these contracts from my traditional publishers. And so I haven't had time to finish the other one, but I am going to finish it at some point here. And so there'll be more to that series. Um, it's just, I guess for me, it's nice knowing if something were, hap were to happen and I didn't get another contract, I could still keep writing and I and people could still get my books and all those kind of things. So it's um, kind of a relief. It's a good way of looking at it. Let's talk a little bit about Anna as a reader. You mentioned that you read in different genres. Do you really kind of explore different things? Are there some genres you absolutely would not touch with a 10-foot pole? Uh, <laughs> are there books that have been like touchstones for you as a reader in your career? So I do read widely. I mean, I would say historicals, mysteries, um, romance. Those are my three big ones. I do do some fantasy and, and um, those kind of things and contemporary. Um, I don't do a ton of sci-fi. I'm not a big sci-fi person, but I do every once in a while. Horror, I would say that I never read, except I did read a horror book this summer that I really, really enjoyed, but it was more of like a goth, Southern Gothic kind of horror. Um, and I just didn't read the last couple chapters right before bed. But it was really excellent. Um, it's, uh, oh, it's called A House with Good Bones, I think is what it's called. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. It's book. almost a gothic um, in a sense. Uh, yes. Yeah. Which is why I think probably why I liked it. So, um, so basically I could read it in any genre. I just got to find the right book. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, gosh, touchdowns, touchstones for me. Um, I would say, well, Nancy Drew was huge for me as a, as a child. I, in teen, I love Nancy Drew. And now I'm reading it with my, um, nine-year-old um and yeah I just love Nancy Drew and so you know I had my own like little series I wrote of mystery solving teens when I was you know in upper elementary and um and so I, I can think that's always lived with me that I I just that that notion and so definitely that's a touchstone um Mary Stewart of course I just love her books and her her settings and her characterization is just amazing um Gosh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think Tasha Alexander might have been the first historical mystery that I read uh, after college when I was, you know, re-exploring wow. writing and that. And I and I just was like, oh, this is a blend that I love. It's all the thing, you know, it's the history, it's the mystery, it's the romance, you know, and then several other authors in that same genre. But I think maybe hers was the first one I read and it was like a light bulb went off <laughs> in my head. 
um, this is what I want to write. So, yeah. That's great. Um, how can readers learn more about you and your books? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? I am. So my website, uh, AnnaLeeHuber.com, all of my links are on there at the top that, to make it easy. But I am on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Um, I do have a YouTube channel, but I haven't posted anything there for a little while. Um, but yeah, all my links can be found on my website to make it easy. That's right. You were doing like short author interviews on Book Talk, whatever. I was. I was doing that through the end of last year. And then I had to get my book. <laughs> I was way behind on a book deadline. So I was like, well, I got to set this aside for a while. But I would like to start doing that again now that the book's You were books very good in. with those. Those were such oh, fun. Oh, thank you. They were fun. They were a lot of fun. And I love getting to highlight other authors and and share who I like to read and who who I find interesting. So. I can't believe our time has already gone by so quickly. We've been very fortunate to have with us Annalie Huber, whose new book, Sisters of Fortune, will be available soon. Reserve a copy or ask your library to purchase one. Whatever you do, you'll want to read this truly immersive reading experience. I'd like to thank Anna for taking time to be with us again. And for everyone tuning in, thank you for joining us for another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Thank you, Anna. Thank you so much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.